You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee. David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spale. I'd also, li- I'd also like to welcome our new quartermasters: Evan, Brandon, the Gecko, Nathan, and Kevin, as well as our newest Commodores and the Snarlin' Sea Dog. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. In our overall story, we've reached about 1704. The War of the Spanish Succession is in full swing, and there are three main theaters that we're focusing on. There's the Continent, where we find Mary Reed, there's the Sea, where the privateers are about to explode, and then there's America, including the Caribbean. Now, we've talked about the war in the Caribbean a bit. You know, the tale of John Benbow and the action of August 1702. And naturally, the Caribbean is going to be our main stage moving forward. But it's not just the Bahamas and Jamaica and Tortuga. Although, you know, yeah, all of those. But there are other areas we need to focus on. Places like Mobile, St. Augustine, and, while it's not in the Caribbean, Charleston in Carolina. Charleston is a major player in Caribbean politics, especially in the Caribbean economy. And this region of what is today the southern United States is a major theater in the War of Spanish Succession, both at sea and on land. 
So today we're going to begin our look at the war in continental North America. This is episode 315, Queen Anne's War, Part 1. Queen Anne's War is the second in a series of what we call here in the States the French and Indian Wars. Now, I know it's a bit of complex historiography, but stick with me here. These wars are so named because the English fought the French and the Indians. And it's that kind of expert historical analysis that keeps you coming back. But the names of each individual war within the French and Indian Wars are a lot more fun. The first, fought during the Nine Years' War, was King William's War. The second, here in the War of the Spanish Succession, is Queen Anne's War. And the third, during the War of Austrian Succession, was King George's War. And there's something just amazingly passive-aggressive about those names. Like it's saying, it's not our war. It's the king's war. You know, oh great, another king wants us to fight and die in yet another war to decide who gets to sit their fat butt on some European throne. For me, in those names, there are echoes of what would become American non-interventionism. You know, they really didn't like fighting in European wars, but make no mistake here. The French and Indian wars were all about territory in the colonies far more than they were about some far-off European throne. Today we're going to be focused on the southern territories in continental North America, the Native American tribes of what are today the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida are going to concern us a great deal. So we should do a quick roundup to introduce the Indian players. Now, the Cherokee are one of the biggest tribes who are going to be involved in this theater of war, but they're not going to be of any significant interest today. The Cherokee lived primarily in the southern Appalachian Mountains and the surrounding foothills, and they were closely allied to the English in places like Carolina. If we move west into Tennessee, as well as places like northern Alabama and Georgia, we would find the Creek people. Today they're called the Muscogee, but at the time, they were known as the Creek. The Muscogee Creek were also allied to the English, specifically in this case the colony of Carolina. A little bit further west, in northern Mississippi and Alabama, we would find the Chickasaw people, who had a close alliance to the Muscogee Creek and the English. And those three tribal groups, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw and the Muscogee are the three largest groups allied to England at this time. But there are dozens of smaller tribes that have their own diplomatic standing. But that was always heavily influenced by their larger neighbors. On the Spanish side, the only Indian allies we need to concern ourselves with are the Appalachian people. They lived in northwest Florida. The Appalachian had pre-Columbus been a large, powerful, tribal confederation, but at this point they had been much diminished. Moving west to southern Alabama, we find the Choctaw people. Now, the Choctaw have a lot in common with the Chickasaw. They, in fact, shared common ancestors, but about 400 years before this time, they'd split. They were still neighbors and culturally very similar, but over time they began to grow a pretty serious rivalry. 
and it grew worse and worse. And by 1700, the Choctaw were looking for an alliance that would balance out the Chickasaw alliance with England. At which point the French arrived in the Gulf of Mexico. And then finally, back up to the north in Virginia and North Carolina, you find the Shawnee. Now, the Shawnee didn't really have enough contact with the French to call them allies, exactly. At least not yet, not during this war. But the French were happy to ship them guns and weapons with which to fight the Cherokee. And that's going to do quite a bit to hurt the English in Carolina, but that's all for later. For now, you have the two sides here. On the one side, you've got England, the Cherokee, the Muscogee Creek, and the Chickasaw. On the other, you have France... Spain, the Appalachee, the Shawnee, and the Choctaw. Now, some of you may be thinking, especially if you're an American, something along the lines of, you know, I know the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Shawnee, I've heard of most of these people, but the Appalachee, who's that? The Appalachee are not nearly as well known as many of those other tribes we've mentioned. Because the Appalachee people aren't going to come out of this story very well. By the end of the war, the Appalachee will be all but gone. Their last survivors are going to be hiding out in Spanish missions, until finally they're just incorporated into other tribes. And that's a real shame. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are going to die, and that's bad. But the Appalachee people, or at least that you know, larger cultural group of northern Florida were distinct from the Mississippian mound builders to their north and distinct from the kind of Caribbean Taino-ish people in southern Florida. Culturally and linguistically, they were unique, unlike really anyone else in the world. But thanks to disease, and then Spanish enslavement, and finally, this war, the Appalachian people are going to disappear. So that's our roundup of the Native American peoples that will be active here in the southern theater of Queen Anne's War. But the European colonists in those same regions had been going through quite the shake-up as well. Now, a bunch of stuff had changed up north in places like New England and New York. Lord Bellamont was dead, but we're going to hold off on talking about that. Virginia, on the other hand, was pretty stable, you know, handing off power peacefully, Carolina was really having a time of it. Now, we all remember that back in 1665, the Carolina colony was split into two provinces, right? Right. But, officially speaking, Carolina wasn't separated, not yet. And, officially speaking, it wasn't even really a colony. That implies royal ownership. Instead, it was a proprietorship. The land of Carolina was divvied up between several lords proprietor. The unofficial separation between North and South Carolina had more to do with religious division and ideas about how best to govern. In general, the northern half of the province was all about traditionalism. They believed in royal authority and the Church of England. Down to the South, they believed in local elected councils, and they had a culture of religious dissent. Mainly, they were Baptists. But Carolina did still have a royally appointed governor, and in 1700, King William appointed a Carolinian named James Moore. 
The book Queen Anne's War by Michael G. Laramie, to whom this episode owes a great deal, well, that book has a chapter titled Moore's Folly. That, and the fact that we just foreshadowed the extermination of an entire tribe of people who were enemies of the English, should suggest that James Moore isn't going to come out of this story looking very good. Now, the document that made the separation between North and South Carolina a thing was written by John Locke, and that's actually a document that formally codified slavery which was not John Locke's proudest moment. But that document also outlined Carolina's borders. The northern border of the province is basically the same as it is today. The southern border, though, extended well into Spanish territory. In fact, it included St. Augustine. So that's North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and northern Florida. And then to the west, there really was no defined border. It just kind of kept going until whenever. Which is the way that territories were defined early on in American history. I've got this map of the U.S. that was commissioned just a few years after the Revolution. And in the North, the borders of the new states look pretty much like they do today. But to the South, North, South Carolina, Georgia, they all just extend in these straight lines all the way to the Mississippi. But here's the thing. If the Carolina colony included basically everything south of Virginia, all the way from the Atlantic to the Mississippi River, there is a ton of land that was not yet owned by any of the Lord's proprietor. And as it turns out, the old land grant for Caroline that had been issued by King Charles I way back in 1629, well, that land grant was still sitting around gathering dust, and technically, it was still valid. So a man named Daniel Cox, who was the personal physician to King William and later to Queen Anne, he bought it. Like, all of it, the rest of Carolina, he bought that. And he got a good deal on it. But still, that's really just a piece of paper. I mean, a man like that would only ever get to keep what he could actually hold. And to hold a piece of land like that meant trading posts, forts, and lots of men with lots of guns. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. By 1702, there were half a dozen forts in western Carolina. There were even more trading posts, all of which were facilitated by the Chickasaw. The Chickasaw traded the English for a bunch of stuff, mostly guns and tools. And in return, they gave the English furs and crops. But there was one other product that the English demanded. They wanted slaves. Now, slavery was by no means unknown to the North American native peoples. You would find slaves everywhere, but by and large, the people of North America didn't practice chattel slavery. Like a lot of tribal peoples dating back to the mists of prehistory, most of the Native Americans of North America took captives in raids and battles. But they weren't property, really. They were more like hostages that had to do menial labor, but eventually, once a ransom was paid, would be returned home. At least, that's how it was for the men. The women who were captured were usually captured forever, but even that wasn't like a, an eternal subjugation. Well, you know, not any more than was usual for women. What I'm saying is that those captured women were usually incorporated into the tribe and given the same rights and responsibilities of every other woman in the community. That's how smaller communities all throughout the world, all throughout history, would avoid marrying everyone to their cousin and winding up with horrible monster babies. And I mean, let's be honest here, if you were to get captured by a brave handsome young warrior might be kind of hot you might even want to marry him and don't lie i've seen the kind of books you all read but that's not what the english were doing they were trading for choctaw slaves captured by the chickasaw and putting them to work on their plantations forever those choctaw were now the property of the plantation owner. Not only that, their children and their children's children were the property of the plantation owner. To the Chickasaw, this was pretty despicable. They did not like doing it. But if they refused to trade in human lives, the English would not give them guns. And if the English didn't give them guns, then there would be a rival group that had guns, thanks to trading in human lives, that would be able to wipe them out. So the Chickasaw people were stuck. Now, the Spanish down in Florida, they weren't arming their tribal, you know, I don't want to use a word like allies, because they weren't. Subjects would be a better word. But the Indian peoples who lived around them were not given guns, thanks to, you know, a century or more of having been enslaved by the Spanish. You don't usually give those people guns. But in a time when firepower was the new metric of power, the Appalachian had none. If their neighbors, who had guns from the English if they were to arrive in Appalachian territory, the only defense they really had was to run to one of the many Spanish missions dotting the countryside. Or, you know, if they were close to St. Augustine, that was a good place to hide out. And then, much more recently, back in 1698, 
the Spanish founded a settlement at Presidio Santa Marta de Galva. Today we call that Pensacola. Pensacola was the brainchild of a man named Andres de Ariola, second to the viceroy of New Spain and governor of Spanish Florida. Now, Ariola had to really just lie his head off to get the funding and the supplies he needed to found a settlement at Pensacola. According to the reports he delivered to the viceroy in Mexico City, Pensacola was a land of milk and honey. Unicorns and rainbows, rivers filled with gold, that kind of thing, which it's not. In fact, in mineral resources and even agricultural production, Pensacola then and now wasn't that rich. But what Pensacola had is what it's still got. It's a great port. And a port on the Gulf Coast was necessary for the Spanish in Florida because the French were setting up settlements in places like Biloxi. Biloxi was founded in 1699. And you'll remember that that was where Lauro de Graff and his wife, and Yulavu, wound up. The French, though, did not call it Biloxi. That was the name of the nearby Native American tribe. Instead, they called the actual settlement Fort Maripa. You'll sometimes see it said that Biloxi was the capital of the colony of Louisiana, or New France, from about 1699. And that's kinda true, but also not true at all. It's like when people claim that Tortuga was the capital of Saint-Domingue. It was the only real French settlement, but in 1699 there was no colony of Louisiana. Way up to the north, there were French settlements at places like Fort Etoile and Quebec, but down to the south, they really only had the one fort at Biloxi, very recently built. So it's only the capital by default. But that changed in 1701 thanks to a French explorer named Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville. D'Iberville was an interesting guy, and allegedly during his career he had a lot of dealings with pirates from places like Tortuga. In some ways he could be kind of seen as a French version of Adam Baldridge, in that he set up a place that was friendly to smugglers and semi-legal privateers, that also ran kind of an international trading ring, dealing mostly in pirated goods. All of which might be thanks to his having founded Biloxi, this pirate haven, with a pirate like Lauro de Graff. But beyond all of that, Diberville is an important figure. His family were leading the charge in the French colonization in America. His older brother was the governor of Montreal, and his younger brother would go on to found New Orleans. He founded Biloxi in 1699, but in 1701 he returned to the region on a voyage to find the mouth of the Mississippi River. To the west of Biloxi he discovered a large bay that led to a very big river which he believed to be the Mississippi, and there he would build Fort Louis de Louisiane. This was the moment that the Louisiana colony was officially founded with royal backing. Iberville was empowered as governor of the new territory, which at the time really just stretched between Fort Louis and Biloxi. 
Now, both of these fort cities were built on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, intended to control naval traffic in the Gulf and the Mississippi River. But that's a task that's going to require a great deal of naval power, something they just did not possess yet. So what do fledgling colonial governors do when they need ships? That's right, they issue letters of mark. And Iberville did. A lot. But that's still for the future. For now, he had to make contact with the local native tribes. He began an expedition up the river and met with several different groups, some of them who had met the French before. Back in the 1680s, another French explorer named de Salle and his lieutenant, Henri de Tonti, had explored the Mississippi River and claimed it for France. One of the tribes that Iberville encountered had these fine steel axes that were clearly European. Their chief also had a blue cloak that was even more distinct. They had received these gifts from Henri Tonti. And that's the good news. La Salle had clearly been here before, but as his expedition continued up the river, D'Iberville began to realize that he was not where he thought he was. De Salle's notes mentioned tribes that just weren't to be found anywhere along the river. D'Iberville realized that he was not on the Mississippi. When he returned to Fort Louis, it had been completed, and they called it, well, they called it Fort Louis, but the site where it was built, they called Mobile. But, you know, more French. Still, even if it wasn't the Mississippi itself, it was a good location for a fort to project naval power, so they let it stand. D'Iberville departed Mobile to return to France and collect supplies for the new colony. But just a couple of weeks after he left, an English sloop arrived in Mobile Bay. The sloop was commanded by a Captain John Barr, who was surprised to find a French fort there. He was also on a mission to establish a colony at the mouth of the Mississippi River, and he also mistook Mobile Bay for the mouth of the Mississippi. Now, Captain Barr had 16 guns on his sloop, and had no desire to engage in a firefight here, so he just spoke with the Frenchmen that were rowed out to meet him, and then Captain Barr departed to give his boss the bad news. The French had beaten them to it. On his return journey, Captain Barr in his sloop was spotted by lookouts at Presidio Santa Marta de Galva. The governor there, Ariola, was in Mexico at the time, but he received word of these Englishmen sailing by his fort. An English sloop snooping along the coast. He also received reports of a fort that had been built on Mobile Bay. The reports and Ariola assumed that fort to be English. So Ariola got the go-ahead from the Viceroy in Mexico City to oust these interlopers. Ariola took a frigate carrying about 100 Spanish soldiers. They sailed along the coast and were nearing Biloxi, remember the pirate haven on the Gulf of Mexico, when his ship was approached by a pair of sloops that were flying the King's Jack. English colors. Most likely pirates. The two sloops fired off a warning shot and hailed the Spanish frigate to stand down which Ariola did. 
The men from the English vessels were climbing aboard when all of a sudden, to their dismay, they found over a hundred well-armed soldiers aiming muskets at them. It was awkward. But upon being questioned, it turned out that these quote-unquote English pirates were French. They had been flying a false flag, and obviously they assumed that the Spanish were doing the same thing. I mean, there are Englishmen about after all. Can't be too trusting, right? It's not like they were freebooters sent out to capture Spanish shipping. I mean, France and Spain were allies. That would be crazy. Just a misunderstanding, guys. So, could you put down the muskets? The Spanish did not. They arrested these French pirates. However, these French filibusters did have information for Ariola. Turns out that that newly built fort at Mobile was not English. It was French. And that infuriated the governor. Maybe more than an English fort would have. You know, the English were known to be rapscallions, but the French were supposed to be allies. And after their recent alliance, the French had agreed not to put up any more forts along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, which after all was the Gulf of Mexico, not the Gulf of Louisiana. Ariola. Furious sailed from Mobile and lodged a formal complaint with Governor d'Iberville. He informed the French governor that he would be speaking to the Viceroy of New Spain. The Viceroy would speak to the king, and the king was King Louis's grandson. It was all useless, really, and Ariola knew it, but he was angry about all of this. Still, though... Once he began to calm down, he realized that a French fort might help him against English encroachment. The English were creeping more and more into Spanish Florida. Those outposts in Carolina were of real concern to Ariola, but they were also of concern to the Frenchmen. So the French and Spanish decided not to pursue their grievances until the English had been dealt with. Ariola and Iberville agreed to consolidate their Indian allies, and then to force the English back out of Carolina. To this end, Iberville held a huge conference and invited leaders from virtually every tribe that his messengers could reach. This included the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, tribes who were currently at war and did not like each other. But Iberville charmed them. He wooed them with professions of friendship and lavish gifts. He offered to mediate between them should any kind of conflict arise and to put an end to their current war. And he promised the Chickasaw that, should they agree to an alliance with France, he would provide them with guns and steel. That was important. But, even more important... The French made a solemn oath not to enslave any Indian peoples in Louisiana. And as far as I'm aware, that's an oath that the French would never break. That means that the Chickasaw would get guns and steel and support without having to sell anyone into slavery. It was huge. What's more, this alliance brought peace with the Choctaw and the Shawnee. Less important, but also relevant, it brought peace with the Appalachee. So the Chickasaw agreed to join this French alliance. As Michael G. Laramie writes in Queen Anne's War, quote, 
The effort had suddenly transformed the southeastern frontier. The English had been dealt a severe blow without a shot being fired, and perhaps worse, the French had solidified an alliance that brought thousands of men to their cause. End quote. The deck was stacked against the English in Carolina. Next time, Queen Anne's War breaks out in America, and a lot of people are going to die. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Ben Franklin's World, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, well, unfortunately, the website that I've been telling you to visit for a few years now is no longer up. However, there are still plenty of good options to check out their music. YouTube, Bandcamp, Spotify, wherever fine songs are found. And I urge you to do so, because it's great stuff. Whenever you're done, you can go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.